Welcome to session three of the Franken Read. Um, just a moment to thank Stephanie so much for organising this and for a delectable spread, which was um, most enjoyable. So thank you very much. Um, I'd like to welcome Guy Webster to present his paper, Yes Master, No Master, The Cinematic Development of Igor in the Frankenstein Narrative. Um, Guy Webster, Guy, I, just, I, thought, I thought that expression meant that maybe I got something wrong. I was thinking not already. <laughs> no. um, and Guy's working on uh, Kurtzia and cinematic representations of, of, of Kurtzia. Uh, thank you, Guy. Um, so just as a provider for um, getting in, it's going to be a bit, uh, approaching it almost like um, Jeff did with his paper, kind of just as an amalgamation of lots of different thoughts on Igor as a character so that we kind of tease those out hopefully together. Um, so of course, what has kind of repeated through all of these different papers is a reference to 1931's Frankenstein, um, specifically to Frankenstein's monster in that, which I think we can all agree as we're going to watch and see, is the kind of epitome that we all recall when we go through Frankenstein. But what is equally essential, um, as sure as Frankenstein's monster elicits, you know, images of bolts in a neck and a foreboding grunt from an undead green mouth, so too does Igor immediately conjure images of the intentive but inevitably stupid servant with a hunchback, a limping gait, and more than questionable intelligence, all of which places him in servitude to his more adept master, Dr. Frankenstein. This character is now firmly associated with the legacy of Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, even though it never appeared in the original text, at least not under his name. Igor is an addition prompted by adaptation. It was 1823 when he first appeared under the name Fritz in the first season of the play Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein by Richard Brinsley Peake. Then it was in 1931 that Universal Pictures Frankenstein, which we'll be watching later, that Fritz reappeared on film, a bumbling assistant to Dr. Frankenstein. But since then, various adaptations have, if not actively included Igor, uh, at least added their own unique additions to the story with him in mind. Recently, there has been a resurgence of film projects which have not only sought to revive Frankenstein, uh, to bring it back into immediate cultural and pop-cultural consciousness, but that have staged a revisionist account of Igor in order to do so. This paper will specifically draw on 2015's Victor Frankenstein as an example of the problems that are faced by adaptations of Frankenstein today. This paper will consequently identify a distinct trend in the metaphorical ecosystem of Frankenstein cinema today, a trend toward a sense of self-consciousness. Um, a trend where adaptations turn inward onto themselves as they reflect and critique the numerous adaptations that circle the Frankenstein story. And then also how they intend to react or engage with these adaptations. In film, this is a trend that becomes an interesting source of seemingly irresolvable tensions. That in the case of Victor Frank Frankenstein, the film, lead to the detriment of the film's overall success and its cultural impact. In his earliest conception, Igor was presented or created to meet the needs of new modes of representing the Frankenstein narrative. In the 1823 play that I referenced earlier, Fritz is considered an invented servant required to provide comic relief and exposition, according to Dee Morale. Theatre and film are media with less of an ability to represent eternal consciousness in the way that the novel does. Ego consequently provides an exp expository force that in his reactions and conversations help to serve um, and characterize Victor. In the 1931 film, Fritz prompts Victor to explain his ideas and gives the audience greater access into his complex methodology and motivations as they force Victor to explain himself. Kenneth Branagh's terrible 1994 adaptation, <laughs> we all know it, um, casts Henry Kerville, sorry, in a similar role as a backboard from which Victor is prompted to explain his ideas and his methodology. Even though in the novel, Duval is 
contrastingly reticent to pro-Victor in the novel. Thus, Brunner's film acknowledges the worth of a companion figure akin to Igor, if not named as such. In Mel Brooks' infamous 1974 spoof of Young Frankenstein, Igor's, or Igor, Igor's presence is integral to much of the comedic dialect that occurs between him and Frankenstein, or Frankenstein. Quite simply, Igor is an effective device that provides greater opportunities for the central story to explain itself to its audience. Moreover, Igor is a curious foil to the creature. With his characteristic body deformity and his subservience to the Doctor, he could easily be viewed as an experiment previous to the creature, one that was almost entirely successful. And it is these two conventions of Igor's characterization, crudely rendered here for the sake of time, that Paul McGuin's recent film, Victor Frankenstein, attempts to extend and to challenge. It opens with this. You know the story. Crack of lightning, an evil genius. Spoken by Igor, played by Daniel Radcliffe, this opening gives Igor a kind of narrative power. His metafictive awareness presented here is something his character has never before been given. As we hear this, we see the story we are supposed to know played out before us. Frankenstein's monster lies on a gurney, pulled up into a lightning storm above him. This is a scene that will come near the film's conclusion, and so the film immediately cuts to something else, a blurry outline of someone walking in the distance. Someone we discover is our narrator. By doing so, our narrator is not only able to acknowledge his place in a story we know, because it is simply one of many in a slew of Frankenstein adaptations, but is also able to influence the film directly, pushing us to where we, he wants us to go by changing scenes. Igor opens the story with a metafictive awareness and control that seems intended to position the film itself as a new addition to the legacy of Frankenstein films. But this is not the first time Igor has adopted and or opened an adaptation of Frankenstein. In Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein, which I mentioned earlier, as the first attempt to introduce Frankenstein, I mean, as Igor, then called Felix, he also opens the narrative with something a bit different. I declare I'm so nervous, he says. Every knock is a shock. I declare I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. <laughs> this is the opening. And it seems initially quite different to the opening that I referenced earlier. But the intent behind them is the same. Both adaptations argue for their own individuality. They attempt to place their text as a new addition to the story. In presumption, Felix's opening already subverts the source text. The play is introduced by a character who is never in the novel. Within a medium, it has not been associated with until then. The film uses its own opening to do the same, but to less success. It is unsuccessful precisely because presumption has already done it. The film has inherited not only a list of characters that conclude or subvert, or of conventions or different settings and genres which different texts before have used or challenged, but has also inherited the need to differentiate itself from these adaptations something which these previous adaptations also tried to do. There is no such thing as Frankenstein, Paul O'Flynn writes. There are only Frankensteins, as the text is ceaselessly rewritten, reproduced, refilmed, and redesigned. The effect of this legion of Frankensteins on cinematic readaptations of the novel is an interesting extension of a kind of blooming anxiety, one that Victor Frankenstein, the film, attempts to answer through a revisionist interpretation of the text, one that seeks to revisit Eagle. In its opening, Victor Frankenstein attempts to position itself as a new contribution to the Frankensteins before it. Placing Igor front and center and giving him metafictive agency, the film Victor Van Frankenstein attempts to argue for its unique contribution to the canon of adaptations from the outset. But the director of the film went about creating this film with the intent to use the history of adaptations of Frankenstein, but also with a self-admitted desire to revise it. Let's put them all in the same film, but we also make our own at the same time, he says, says in an interview. He looked to Igor, who you think you know, to give him a character, as he says. This intention may seem initially sustainable. Surely the presence of Igor as a stock character accumulated by many different adaptations offers a ripe opportunity to reinvent him. But as you can see, this is where the trap lies in the film. Because Igor is a creature of adaptation. He has been created by an accumulation of interpretations of the text and then interpretations of those interpretations. 
and it's this layered process that seems to offer some freedom, perhaps, in pursuing a new version of him. If, as Nick Groom observes in his introduction to the 2018 edition of the novel, Frankenstein's monster has escaped its pages and run amok through the 1920th and now the 21st centuries, then there's a sense that Igor, Igor also can go in any directions, be interpreted in any way precisely because his characterization is a construct, because he has never had a page to escape in the first place. The only restrictions that surround Redacting Igor is one um, that places the previous representations of him in film. But this, in fact, this is certainly how the director of Victor Frankenstein um, viewed this. But of course, there's a limit to this, and Paul McGowan does not acknowledge it. This mobility is extended also by the sense that Igor has transcended his, ad transcended his adaptations entirely. And Paul McGowan's film, in, in fact, reacts to this transcendence. Igor is now a stock character, associated more with the Gothic genre generally than with Frankenstein specifically. He never had the text to anchor him as a character. And in 2004, we see this capitalized in the film of Van Helsing, starring Hugh Jackman in the titular role. The film predicated itself on bringing together various storylines of the Gothic universe. It was a crossover film before Marvel existed, drawing on Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and countless other Gothic material. It also included Eagle. In this film, a conventionally hunchback Eagle becomes the character most suited and used to smooth over the many different texts used in the film. His refrain, yes master, no master, serves to place Dracula as a stand-in for Dr. Frankenstein and facilitates our acceptance of this recasting. Eagle straddles the different franchises used in this film with an effectiveness that facilitates our acceptance of the presence of what we assume is Igor. As another example, in 1994, Dracula, Dead and Loving It, Reinfeld, um, of course, the, a key character in the Dracula narrative, um, also refers to Dracula with Master, which he quickly tries to amend to Mister. Reinfeld also walks with a limp that alludes to the influ influence of Igor once again. And ultimately, this serves to elevate the film from a parody, parody of Dracula specifically to a more universal pastiche on the Gothic universe of which Dracula and Frankenstein are both a part. Again, just as Igor's distant ancestor Fritz is a device, a tool used to facilitate humor or to place the text in a more widespread Gothic inheritance, this is also used in Dracula. Even in Harry Potter, capitalizes on this prisoner of, <laughs> on the use of Igor. When Harry first arrives at Leaky Cauldron, the prisoner of Azkaban, he is humorously waited on by a bumbling hunchback servant. This reference positions Harry Potter in a deeply reflective conversation with the Gothic influences that in the first film are really quite central. In contrast, the creature, when used in any cinematic adaptation, anchors any text to the Frankenstein narrative more explicitly. At least, it is this apparently liminal nature that McGuin appears in conversation with. So his film predicates itself on revising Igor, but doing so, it attempts to align him with the Frankenstein franchise specifically. The film effectively attempts to pull Igor into the franchise and into specificity by pumping him with the characterization via backstory. Its revision of the story disconnects him from the more far-reaching impact on tone and genre which he has been used for. The way Igor has been used in the past has been placed with the more specific purpose given to him in Victor Frankenstein in a fraught tension. What adds to this tension in the film is a sense that no matter, no matter how much Igor has changed, no matter how many details are added to the story to increase audience interest, he is part of a wider story that is really just more interesting than him. To center the story on Igor is to imbue him with a significance that he cannot handle, and the reason for this inability is linked to a legacy of previous representations of him, a small slice of which I've already referenced, that McEwan's film seems to have underestimated. McEwan subliminally acknowledged this in the film when he repeatedly ensures that we associate Igor with a more charismatic Frankenstein's monster. Sometimes the monster is the man, Igor as narrator states at the beginning. Paired with a blurred vision of a walking figure, he seeks to intentionally lead us to associate this blurry figure with the monster that we have come into the story expecting. There is a reason that the film's title focuses on Victor Frankenstein rather than its central protagonist. 
McEwen not only acknowledges the market value of the Frankenstein franchise, but also the flimsiness of Igor as a new way into this franchise. In fact, Igor's narrative arc in the film assumes a kind of building's roman, which centers on his relationship with Victor, a relationship that closely parallels also the relationship between Victor and the creature in the novel. At 19 years old, Igor is taken by Victor to his laboratory after revealing a particular talent in physiology. There, Victor transforms him. He removes his hunchback, revealed to be a 19-year-old abscess, strains his spine, bathes and shaves him, and even gives him the name, Igor. In effect, the film adapts what in the novel is the exaggerated myth of male self-birthing, as Joan Picard identifies, by presenting Igor as Victor's creation. I'm the man he made me, Igor states midway through the film. His building Roman is consequently centered on the sense of obligation and responsibility he feels toward Victor, his creator, the one who he says gave me a life. In fact, by the end of the film, Igor's developmental narrative parallels that of Frankenstein's monster in a way that highlights Igor as the more successful. Acknowledging this, Victor concludes the film by telling Igor, you are and you shall remain my greatest creation. The film consequently seeks to capitalize on the history of Igor as a complement to the themes and ideas in the novel. But the tension that underpins Igor's development in the film, his sense of obligation to Victor, cannot, cannot escape its place as secondary to the more engaging details of Victor's relationship with the creature. It is near impossible to believe that Igor is Victor's greatest creation. The way he grapples with a sense of obligation to Victor is stripped of the religious and existential themes with which the construction of Igor capitalizes from its first adaptation. Or, more rather, um, what bolsters the relationship between Victor and the monster in the novel. The film cannot escape the fact that even from the outset, Igor was designed to be a secondary character to complement the central story. In fact, it actively seeks to ignore this fact by seemingly argue that Igor presents a more successful representation of the preoccupations of the central story, the greatest creation, per se. Many critics have commented the utterly negative repercussions that the self-appraising characterization has in the film. Manola Dargis of the New York Times, Andrew Barker writing for Variety, and Mike D'Angelo in his review for the AV Club all comment in one way or another on the ultimately self-destructive nature of the film's revisionist turn and adaptation. Recasting a story about gods and monsters into a buddy movie, writes Dargis, makes for a long, long wait for the lightning bolt that brings the big guy to life. In effect, the audience awaits the moment of film that its history of adaptation, a history which Igor actively acknowledges, has always promised in one way or another, the it's alive moment, per se. But in Victor and Frankenstein, Igor even steals this line. He whispers under his breath when life is given to a chimpanzee, it is alive, and Victor can do nothing but agree. In fact, Andrew Barker aptly summarizes this problem when he says, as the film's first line later repeats, we do know this story. But if one is to go to the trouble of resurrecting the Frankenstein narrative, a little more respect ought to be paid to, this, to its signature themes and scenes. This leads to analysis of adaptation, which I will end on. There is a sense of lethargy that surrounds Frankenstein, one that Bloom's allude, Bloom alludes to when he comments on the unending series of Frankensteins. This lethargy plagues the franchise, even as the story's themes continue to engage us in some way. The Dark Universe, a recent effort by Universal Pictures, was uniquely hailed as an attempt to capitalize on the current traction of films that are part of a larger franchise. Dracula Untold in 2014 was the first attempt. It failed. And The Mummy, 2017, was the second. It also failed. So with the promise of a Frankenstein adaptation starring Javier Bardem now up in the air as part of this franchise, we are left to wonder what this adaptation would look like, or whether it would be worth pursuing at all. There is something consistent not only in the attempts at adaptation like this one by Universal, but also the lethargy by which audiences receive these attempts. Those labelled with the franchise, or those that label themselves as innovations, face an uphill climb. They have succumbed to varying degrees to the appealing character of a break with the past. One that must always cast itself as new, but is received with a suspicious audience, crippled by a lethargy of reinvented, re-enlivened adaptations that predicate their adaptations on a desire 
and even an anxiety to break into the canon. And with a box office profit of 34.4 million, Victor Frankenstein never reached its budget of 40 million. The audience reaction was less than lukewarm, it was almost non existent. Igor consequently appears to be a recent victim of another attempt to break the narrative back into life. The revisionism within the continued filming adaptations of Frankenstein no longer excites or engages audiences, seemingly. Perhaps it is, as Andrew Barker says, if no one is going to go the trouble of Frankenstein narrative, maybe we should put a respect back to the themes and scenes of which it was initially created. Or even as Kaylee Donaldson also puts it, if they truly wish to revive the monsters for a new age, then a return to basics is called for. Let the monsters be monsters and audiences will come to the movies. But there is the potential for hope. And this is something that I would like to discuss further in question time. Perhaps it is in art house cinema that a reemergence of Frankenstein is possible. The recent trend in what I tentatively call high art horror, um, with the likes of Get Out and Hereditary, will perhaps promise an adaptation that, if it doesn't re-enliven the franchise, at least remains faithful to its roots, of which Igor may just reappear. Thank you. Thank you so much, Guy. Um, now I'd like to welcome Paul Sheehan to the uh, microphone, and he's presenting Monstrous Shons, Frankenstein and Post-Humanist Mythology. Okay, thanks, Michelle. Um, as you can see, the title has undergone a sort of Frankensteinian revision, um, reflecting more the paper that I wrote earlier this month, as opposed to the abstract I submitted at the start of the year. Um, mythology still figures in what I'm going to be talking about. In fact, I want to begin by putting it together with science fiction, with which the novel is, has long been associated. So the relationship that's developed between the two, I suggest, between science fiction and mythology, is both complex and conflicted. On the one hand, it can be seen as historically specific and even obvious because, as we know, science fiction stories often incorporate or rework existing myths. The birth of the new social and technological change is thus predicated on the persistence of the old, of mythic patterns and archetypes that have been around for centuries, even millennia. Related to this, as Patrick Parron denotes, science fiction took a mythic turn around the 1930s when it stopped being about prophecy and became more overtly myth-oriented at the cost of scientific plausibility. This proposition becomes more contentious, however, with the stronger claim that science fiction doesn't just incorporate elements of myth, but is itself a kind of mythopoetic discourse. Proponents of this not entirely convincing argument like to point out that even so-called hard science fiction stories can have fantastic qualities, with science simply doing what sorcery and supernatural agencies once did in mythic fantasy. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is clearly a mythic retelling, as the book's Promethean subtitle indicates. The so-called myth of Frankenstein that takes shape then is the cautionary tale of a ruthless, amoral scientist who pays the price for his Faustian overreaching, of a horrified father who forsakes his newborn progeny and then must atone for it, of an illicit experiment that highlights the mind's inability to master what the mind has made. But as well as recapitulating or updating existing mythic patterns, science fiction can also generate new mythopoetic materials, and it's this angle that I want to take with Frankenstein. Accordingly, in this paper, 
I will suggest first that there's a more elusive, incipient myth to be gleaned from Shelley's novel, a post-humanist myth grounded in monstrosity that to some extent ameliorates the severe retributive quality of the generally understood Frankenstein myth. Second, I want to show how this focus on monstrosity can shed light on recent developments in post-humanist studies, away from the speculative techno-poetics that until recently defined it. And third, I want to argue that the novel's latent post-humanist properties don't just anticipate recent theoretical developments, but can be seen in present-day works, as evidenced by the HBO TV series Westworld, which began in 2016. So to begin, how did Frankenstein become the urtext of literary post-humanism? I suggest that there are two lines of descent, both taking shape a century after Shelley's novel. About 30 years ago, Chris Baldick published this work in Frankenstein's Shadow, which traces the Frankenstein myth all the way to the end of the 19th century. His main concern is literary inheritors, Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, Wilde's Dorian Gray, Wells' Dr. Moreau, but he also makes a strong case for the animated monster of material production as precipitating Marx's theory of alienated labor. Baldick doesn't venture too far into the 20th century except to gesture towards Conrad and Lawrence and the monstrous machinations of empire and industry that each condemns. The point that I want to make here is that Shelley's novel can't simply be confined to these well-worn canonical paths. I suggest that it also has affiliations with less reputable literary sources, two in particular, which appeared more or less simultaneously. Just over a century after Shelley's novel was produced, a young American writer from Providence, Rhode Island, set about doing a parody of it. H.P. Lovecraft, as he was known, then composed a multi-part story entitled Herbert West Reanimator that featured an arrogant, amoral scientist obsessed with proving that the human body is a machine-like organism capable of being restarted even after it's expired. And so, like his Swiss-German forebear, West resorts to grave robbing in order to carry out his experiments. Where this tale ends up, however, is very different from the Shelley original. An army of reanimated corpses pays Herbert West a surprise visit, then savagely eviscerates and decapitates him. Although it's an unremarkable part of the Lovecraft corpus, the story nonetheless inspired a series of fairly lurid films in the 1980s, and can now be seen as one of the first modern zombie tales, which is, of course, a dominant post-human figuration today. I stress the word modern because for most of the last century, the Nzambi or Zumbi, both West African words, was associated with witchcraft and voodoo rites. It wasn't until the late 1960s that scientific misdeeds later, disease and contagion, became the agents for corporeal reanimation. Lovecraft's story thus anticipates this development by 50 or 60 years. A month before the story first appeared, in January 1921, the Czech writer Karol Čopek had his first major play performed, R.U.R. Rossum's Universal Robots, as well as becoming a theatrical hit in New York and Chicago, and the first example of science fiction television broadcast by the BBC in 1938. The play brought the word robot into the English language and launched a century-long obsession with robot rebellion narratives. Chopek had first-hand knowledge of Frankenstein 
even though AUR is part of a very different non-Anglophone tradition. What's more important, I think, is that both works share a common source. After he'd finished writing the play, Chopik realised that what he'd produced was, in fact, a modern-day version of The Golem, a Jewish folktale describing an anthropogenic being created from mud or clay, which is never fully human. Although the word itself comes from the Bible, the Book of Psalms, and the earliest Golem stories appear in the Talmud, the first written accounts of Golem creation don't appear until the 12th or 13th century. In his preface to Frankenstein, Percy Shelley mentions German ghost stories as inspiration for the novel. It's recently been argued that these may have included Golem retellings by either Jakob Grimm, 1808, later of the famous um, Grimm's, Brothers Grimm, or Ludwig Achim von Arnhem in 1812. So in terms of what we might call Frankenstein's Shadow, the alternative version, we can see how out-of-control science and technology and the service of the creation of an artificial being, artificial intelligence even, has contributed to the novel's reputation as a science fiction archetype. But Frankenstein is also a gothic tale of reanimation, monstrosity, horror, and the violent return of misdirected urges or impulses all ingredients in the still-flourishing zombie genre, which was itself reanimated in the new century and has now become a kind of metaphorical shorthand for dead things that refuse to go quietly, as this book indicates. Okay, so much for lines of dissent. What exactly is post-humanist about Frankenstein? At the most fundamental level... Shelley is staging a kind of agon with the humanist tradition as it developed in the century prior to her novel. Victor Frankenstein is a romantic idealist, to be sure. The passages in Chapter 10, when he sets off to ascend Montanvert and experiences the sublime ecstasy of imperial nature, bear this out. But he's also, and more significantly, an Enlightenment humanist, committed to the perfectibility of man, as was Shelley's father, William Godwin, and to the knowability of nature, believing that the scientific method can solve the mysteries of existence, which must include the secrets of reproduction. Accordingly, Frankenstein is scornful of superstition and derides anything that smacks of the supernatural. His Enlightenment rationalism is given overt voice when he expresses a desire to break through life and death and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. Yet Frankenstein's monomania, adverting to the dangers or excesses of certain humanist principles, isn't the last word on the subject, which is to say Shelley's engagement with the tradition isn't entirely critical. In a novel that's filled with woe, misfortune and loss, one of the worst things to be is alone in the world, and the worst thing of all, it would seem, is to be an outcast. The yearning for companionship afflicts Robert Walton before he meets Frankenstein, Frankenstein himself before he meets Henry Clerval, and Frankenstein's creature, who implores his creator to make a female creature as deformed and horrible as himself. More than just a part of the humanist tradition, the hunger for sociality is presented here as yet another of those preconditions like consciousness or empathy or altruism or free will, that comes to serve as the mark of the human. Victor Frankenstein's original sin, then, is not so much that he usurps the place of God as that he cuts himself off from the neighborhood of man, as the creature puts it, and as Jeff 
talked about in his paper on solitude, i.e. friends, university colleagues, and most of all, family. Now, in depicting this Aegon, in showing the conflictual aspects of its makeup, Shelley is forcing the humanist creed to an impasse. Indeed, she could also be seen as anticipating, perhaps even hastening, the crisis in humanism that gets underway later in the century, a crisis spurred on by such figures as Nietzsche, Conrad, and the marks of capital, as well as the heated climate of post-Darwinian debate. There's obviously much more to be said about the novel's post-humanist qualities, implicit or otherwise, but I want to move on now to consider these qualities in relation to mythology. This isn't as straightforward or clear-cut as it sounds because the two terms point in opposite directions, where myth connotes something static and fixed, hence recognizable in a wide variety of contexts, Post-humanism is predicated on mutability, malleability, and the principle of transformation. How then can something so protean and metamorphic, so inexorably dynamic, be aligned with the systematics of myth? I suggest that this only comes about or becomes possible through the intercession of the monstrous. As a word, monster is a forward-facing term. It comes from the Latin verb monera, meaning to warn, and it takes the noun form of monstrum, an unnatural portent, an evil omen. This future-oriented as aspect is exploited when both Frankenstein and his bride-to-be are beset by obscure forebodings and presentiments of evil. In similar fashion, the post-human is an emergent ontology in that it's focused on what comes after the successor to or overwriter of the human. What comes after the human may be nothing at all, as extinction theorists like to predict, or it may in fact be a development of the monstrous rather than, say, the cyborg, the clone, or some kind of disembodied AI entity. Monstrosity also opens the post-human to myth. Mythical beings often being monstrous in nature. The creature that Frankenstein brings to life is not just monstrous in size, over eight foot tall, but also in composition. I collected bones from charnel houses, he tells Walton, the dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials. Frankenstein's creature is then a cross-species assemblage, its monstrosity underlined or accentuated by the combination of human and animal parts. I suggest that it's this manifestation of non-identity that horrifies Frankenstein at the moment of creation or reanimation, an implicit riposte to the self-identical subject of his liberal Enlightenment humanism. At the same time, it's this non-identical countenance that makes the creature a harbinger of post-humanism where cross-species monstrosity would once have been seen as a subhuman ontology, an atavistic throwback to a more primitive life form, it's now been fully assimilated into the pantheon of post-human figurations. Yet it's also apparent that the novel is recalibrating or recasting what might count as monstrous. The term carries substantial moral weight, as when Justine says, I almost began to think that I was the monster that my confessor, said I was. And a few pages later, Elizabeth avers that in a world full of vice and injustice, men appear to me as monsters. 
Both are making claims about moral corruption and how easily it can ensnare the innocent. It's monstrosity, then, that really raises the novel's agon with humanism to a pitch of disquiet, almost to breaking point. The creature is born grotesque and deformed, but not necessarily monstrous. That is something it's acquired or learnt in the course of adapting to a horrific and abysmal predicament. For once it has language and self-awareness, Frankenstein's creature is empathetic, eloquent, human-identified, a devotee of high literature, and a vegetarian. <clears throat> its creatural life only takes a monstrous turn once it learns how to suffer, once it grasps that it is truly alone in the world, that it is a terminal species. There's a section in Michel Foucault's Les Mots Les Shows, The Order of Things, entitled Monsters and Fossils, in which he addresses this very concept. Monstrosity in nature, he says, is provisional but necessary because it provides the genesis of differences, the articulation of anomalies and aberrations. If evolution depends to a great extent on monstrosity, mutation and miscreation, it's because nature operates not unlike Victor Frankenstein as an immense series of experiments, most of which, unlike Victor's, are doomed to fail. The monsters spawned by nature constitute a terminal species because although some of their characteristics will make it into the evolutionary continuum, as entities they will disappear. The key move that Foucault makes is to argue that man too is a provisionally terminal species. He is fated to vanish, as the last lines of the book have it, like a face drawn in sand at the edge of the sea. Man is not a tireless timeless concept, but a historically contingent one, and he shares a similar fate to the monsters that, again, like Victor Frankenstein, he discards and disowns. Now, we can see a more cerebral version of this Frankensteinian predicament in the TV series Westworld, which implicitly poses the question, what if Victor Frankenstein had created a mate for his creature, then a whole race of similar beings, and set them loose in a huge theme park for the benefit of paying guests. These beings, animatronic robots known as hosts, are then programmed to act out various interactive storylines with said guests. Anthony Hopkins, who plays Robert Ford, the park's chief scientist and engineer, said that when the role was first offered to him, it was described as being a cross between Victor Frankenstein and Walt Disney. The Frankenstein analogy is especially pertinent. Jonathan Nolan, the show's co-creator, wanted season one to depict the origin of a new species to show how this would play out in its complexity. Victor Frankenstein, we recall, is driven by a similar urge when he says, a new species would bless me as its creator and source. The parallels run deeper still. Late in season one, Ford commands his host offsider, Bernard, to kill a human employee who's been sent to take possession of his precious host code and transmit it outside the park. Bernard complies with his master or maker without any qualms, now he's troubled and haunted by it. I don't understand. I cared for Teresa. I loved her. Why did you make me kill her? One man's life or death is a little bit of small price to pay 
for the acquirement of the knowledge which I sought, for the dominion I should acquire. Ford is quoting, of course, Walton's famous words in a letter to his sister, words that foreshadow Frankenstein's similar pursuit of knowledge at the cost of the lives of those nearest and dearest to him. Or rather, Ford is just about quoting Walton's words. He leaves out part of the last sentence about the elemental foes of my race. Who are these foes? Walton may just be referring to the elements, the adversarial cold that he and his crew are facing, or there may be a darker allusion here to the indigenous peoples that he might have to vanquish. Ford's foes are just as ambiguous. There is the Delos Corporation, which is trying to acquire his code so that they can push him out, and there are the hosts themselves who, like Frankenstein's creature, turn on their makers. Yet given that Ford is behind this last act, indeed he spends most of season one planning and implementing the host's rebellion, his real foe would appear to be humankind itself. So how exactly is the new species that Ford has engineered, which comes to consciousness in the course of the series, how is it akin to the new species that Frankenstein hopes will bless him? Certainly not anatomically. Ford, unlike Frankenstein, has access to highly sophisticated 3D printer technology, so most of his creations are born pure and unblemished. Yet the hosts on Westworld are patchwork creatures, not unlike Victor Frankenstein's, for what is monstrous about them is what we can't see. The layers of half-buried memories which persist across repeated resets, like remembering past lives. These memories are, for the most part, traces or residues of physical violation, of being raped, tortured and abused, of being killed at gunpoint or knife point literally hundreds of times. This doesn't quite lead to self-awareness, as Nietzsche once claimed that pain did, for the human race, but traumatic memories do prompt in certain hosts the question that resonates throughout the series, namely, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Trauma in that sense is a heuristic, as memories of violence and cruelty spur the hosts to see humankind less as godlike and more as sadistic and malign. The hosts are then cognitively malformed or disfigured. We can see this in an arresting scene involving Peter Abernathy, a host that has been content to play a peaceful cattle rancher until he starts to question the nature of his reality. Mr. Abernathy, what are your drives? My daughter Dolores, of course. I must protect Dolores. I am who I am because of her and, well, I... I wouldn't have it. I, I wouldn't have it any other. I, I, I have to warn her. Warn her. The doors. The things you do to her. The things you do to her. Abernathy's primary drive to protect his daughter is contravened by what he knows the guests and the technicians are doing to her, hence this display of cognitive dissonance. To come back to my starting point, 
and the function of mythology in science fiction. Westworld has a mythic framework that is at least threefold. It's recuperating the myth of the West around the time of the Civil War, when the frontier is still being expanded and is underwritten by the belief in manifest destiny, which is why the show has been described as a futuristic meta-Western. Westworld can also be seen as an update of the Pygmalion myth, with Ford effectively giving his creations the gift of consciousness, initially by accident, then by design. And there's a third mythic dimension, a future-pointing one hinted at intermittently. It involves a character named Wyatt, a host soldier outlaw who kills without remorse or misgiving. Wyatt doesn't really exist. As such, he's part of a backstory to explain a bloody incident in the park decades earlier, but the backstory starts to acquire the weight and significance of a myth, as we can see here. Why well, was my sergeant? My friend. Well, then everything... Everything changed. Changed out. Why well, disappeared while out of maneuvers? Came back with some strange ideas. Claimed this land didn't belong to the old natives or the new settlers. That it belonged to something that had yet to come. That it belonged to him. This is myth couched as prophecy. The hosts shall inherit the earth or at least the parcel of land that is the Westworld theme park. It's a posthumanist myth in that it's open-ended, still to come, and it reinscribes the monster as a forward-facing concept, an omen or portent of a radical upheaval in power relations. At various points in the series, Robert Ford says that being in the park, participating in the storylines, doesn't reveal who we really are, as many believe. Rather, it has the potential to make us better than we are. Yet it becomes apparent that he's not referring to the human guests, but to the animatronic post-human hosts. Shelley's critical dialogue with humanism has become here a kind of endgame with Homo sapiens as the terminal species. But rather than turn away in horror from this monstrous future, like Victor Frankenstein, post-humanist studies suggest that we at least try to understand it, if not give it our fullest dissent. Thank you. Questions? Do we have some questions for Guy and for Paul? Is this, yep. <laughs> uh, Guy, you mentioned wanting to say a little bit more about Hope and the art house cinema. I was just wondering what that train of thought was. So if you'd oh, like right. to say a little bit more yeah, about that. try my best to kind of um, prophesy, if you will, as to where the Frankenstein narrative can go. And what I observed is that um, this sort of moment in, in horror that we're experiencing at the moment um, does kind of establish itself as, uh, as a high art form, um, as opposed to what Frankenstein has been characteristically associated, however wrongfully, with the sort of, um, I mean, we talked about last, uh, a couple of speeches ago, that the 1931 was a sort of cult following hit. Um, and then that sort of influx of B-grade movies that have really kind of served to characterize at least filmic representation of Frankenstein with that wide brush stroke of lesser than, almost like Eagle. Um, but like, uh, so I was kind of curious to see um, how this high art moment will 
whether it will reinterpret anything, uh, mythology at all, because it hasn't really made that curse yet, um, or whether it will kind of take its turn to readapt Frankenstein um, at all. So that's just me prophesying, I guess, on that one. Does that make sense? How do you as, as the creature? The creature. Mm. I mean, that's part of itself. As, uh, yeah, well, I mean... I mean, it's sort of done in the country for old men. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, that would be the most interesting thing that we'd be waiting to see of. But unfortunately, because of in previous, because it had, you know, Dracula Untold and the recent Mummy franchise, it seems like they've kind of cast all these different attempts at, to um, to kind of create this dark universe with a very Hollywood blockbuster um, wide appeal, which I don't think No Country for Old Men, although it did kind of assure that, still doesn't really hold for like a wider audience. They're trying to make money and it doesn't seem like he would be able to, given the leash to do that, unfortunately. <laughs> This is just a really quick follow-up question from that. Is I, I wonder, is it just that the Frankenstein myth has now been sort of dispersed into things like Blade Runner or mm. even Prometheus, you know, so mm. a different kind of cinema? I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's a great, absolutely great. I, the sort of um, diversity of those reinterpretations, so Blade Runner is a great idea. Um, also, sort of Young Frankenstein is a great one. Um, that kind of, they are so genre they kind of traverse all these different genres. The diversity that almost seems crippling in so many different ways, not only tonally, um, but also, as you mentioned, Blade Runner being a very obvious sci-fi um, attempt. We have the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is so clearly um, parody dressed with musicals, Young Frankenstein, which is so obviously um, moving into that parody again. Um, it straddles all these different lines that I think people are just really struggling with so much. I mean, we've already kind of alluded to the fact that you know, Westworld um, has these sort of underpinnings as well. So it's, is, we, are we just, should we just confine ourselves to not looking for Frankenstein in the most obvious sense as the source novel and just admit that it is just underpinning all these different great storylines um, in terms of tensions and tones and themes? Um, or should we, like the reviewers of Victor Frankenstein and Victor Frankenstein itself attempted to do, to kind of pull it back to something that's a bit more sincere or honest to try and reclaim the sort of something central about the novel itself, which has not been successful yet. A bit more about how traumatic return and um, the sort of the memory of violence um, provokes something that's future oriented. If you could clarify how those sort of work together. Um, well, I guess the way. Trauma <laughs> <operates>. <laughs> I guess the way trauma operates is that it does create this kind of monstrous interior life. And that then becomes the spur for change, right? For, for transformation. For the, the move from um, a mechanical being to a post-human being. So it's a kind of overcoming, I guess. And maybe it's the idea of overcoming is sort of future-looking. I mean, let's not forget that the, the creature... Um, is a kind of ubermensch, right? It has this agility and strength and 
um, even a sense of cunning to, to be able to outwit Victor at every turn. Yeah. And Victor is a highly educated guy. So uh, even though the creature is portrayed on film as this sort of giant lumbering um, entity, um, it does have these almost sort of superhuman qualities about it. Um, Louise's question, I just wanted to add to what Guy has said about the Frankenstein myth. I think there's still things to do with that myth. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you mentioned Blade Runner. The Blade Runner sequel is not so much about this overcoming. It's more reproduction, mm -hmm. right? The secret of, of reproduction. It's almost, it's, it's going back to the moment of reanimation in the novel and spinning out a, a completely different story from that rather than you know, the return of the repressed, the rebellion, and, and so forth. Yeah, so, well, let's see the first one that yeah. Trying to think about the second one Sure. But, I mean, it seems rather than just going over that yeah. ground again, they've yes. actually picked something um, completely different. Mm. Mm. Oh, another question. Uh, so, Paul, um, just thinking about the, maybe the, the difference in maybe views of trauma that are given by, say, Frankenstein and then Westworld, it seems maybe that there's a real mechanical materialism at work in uh, you know, the, the vitalizing force of the monster. And then, uh, then it seems to come back to something that we could work through with, say, something like that will deny, to a degree, uh, physical mechanics, like, say, psychoanalysis moving towards the trauma on display in Westworld as, like, it's, it's located in bodies, but it seems to require that we buy into some um, kind of, of dualism. Do you th now, that, is, that, is that at odds with, uh, you know, sci-fi couching itself as prophecy? Because it should be maybe closing the door on, on dualism, uh, maybe looking for a new materialism? Is there, do you see a tension between those? Yeah. Well, I guess the reality is science fiction is a highly conservative genre in the sense that the fans know what they want, and most writers sort of cater towards that. There are certain generic forms that, and storylines that get replayed over and over again. Okay, I mean, that's not the entire genre. And there are writers like, um, say, J.G. Ballard or even Philip K. Dick that are, that are thinking beyond that. Um, so, yeah, it is, to, that, to the extent that it is conservative, it is, um, conservative, it is dualistic. Um, but I think there is still science fiction that um, is doing what you're saying it's doing as a kind of a, a movement beyond that, a more materialistic. Um, it sounds like you're asking, is, is, does Westworld belong to that or is that part of the more yes. <laughs> conservative? Yes. Um, I, I think it's hard to say at this stage, given that it's an evolving storyline and given that the, what it has to say about post-humanism hasn't been exhausted. I mean, I mainly spoke about season one, but even in two seasons, I think there's still, it's still evolving, as it were. Um, I mean, it's doing things with time, for example, in, in season two. Bernard's sense of time, it just gets completely scrambled. And his refrain throughout that is, is, is this now, right? And it's explained that he has these memories sort of circulating in his head without any particular order and so forth. Um, I mean, that strikes me as a, quite a novel concept and a way of thinking about the ontology of, uh, host ontology, I guess you could say. 
so yeah, sorry, I, I don't want to, you know, say anything too definite. Any more questions? Uh, this is for Guy. Um, oh, you mentioned Get Out, and I just think, yeah. <laughs> without um, maybe spoiling the movie for everyone, given the kind of body assemblaging that, that happens in that movie, I think there's already some interesting readings of uh, Frankenstein as, as an influence on that movie. But I actually wanted to ask if you know much about, um, I guess I'm thinking of the shift from Fritz to Igor and maybe the development of that figure as, as a racialized figure. I don't know if that's... Um, in terms of the... Like, they're quite racialized names and... And, and even just the history of how that name change happened, I'd be interested to know more. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess I'm, I'm less um, knowledgeable about its sort of racial connotations, but I, I definitely mm. um, went down a rabbit hole of, mm. of pursuing that sort of master-slave dynamic, which um, has a really interesting interpretation um, mm. that some people have. Um, there has been some representations that have kind of cast Igor um, as a specific race in order to capitalize on that dynamic and kind of critique it in a way. Mm. Um, but as, as far as the switch from Fritz to, to Igor, I mean, it was Fritz and then Igor with a Y, and then became Igor as it became, um, again, a bit more parodied, I guess. So it kind of, it's, um, so it goes from Fritz in the 1931, um, and then as it goes through the Son of Frankenstein, the Bride, et cetera, et cetera, um, then it switches at one point. In fact, that switch, the first time Igor is used, I remember he's actually quite an antagonistic character. He, um, mm. I mean, he's kind of, he's passively so in the 1931 Frankenstein one. He, Well, yeah, that's yeah I, I, I think it's actually about 1939, yeah. about around oh, World War II. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's around um, just previous to World War II, so I guess there's definitely really like we made maybe more to influences of World War II somewhere. Or maybe they're um, trying to get away from the Germanic kind of scripture. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, and the fact that it is, as I said, you know, he is really quite antagonistic in the first time that like, Igor is the name or mm. Igor, um, and he's actually almost uses Frankenstein to, um, he's in debt to some people and tries to get Frankenstein to kill them for him. Right. Um, so he becomes a sort of pseudo manipulator in that way. So I guess playing with that anti-Germanic rhetoric would definitely be, yeah, a very interesting reading. Yeah, thank you. I think it's great. That's all questions and it's afternoon tea time. So, and then the, um, the after. So thank you, Paul and Guy. Um, that was wonderful.